Hello and welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm George. And I'm Claire. So we're back and it's a brand new term and a brand new episode of the podcast. Yep. And this week, the quiz geeks among us are very, very excited as UCL are in the final of the BBC Two programme University Challenge. So before the final aired on TV, we invited two of the UCL team into the podcast to talk to us about their experience of appearing on the show, um, how they prepared and what Jeremy Paxman is really like. Yep, it's a really fun interview with lots of insider information about the secrets of the popular show. And we've also been catching up with cutting-edge research from the UCL Geography Department this week. Dr Chris Brearley has recently had a paper published in Nature about a huge pool of warm water that stretched out from Indonesia over to Africa and South America four million years ago. The presence of this pool of water suggests climate models might be too conservative in forecasting tropical changes. So stay tuned to hear more on that. Yes, do have a listen. Uh, Climate change research can often be a bit challenging, really. But Chris has managed to make the topic really accessible to us mere mortals. Um, And now, as usual, we're going to take a look at news and events going on around UCL in the next couple of weeks. Yep. First up, UCL is hosting a major Festival of the Arts from the 7th to the 17th of May. The festival will give the public a chance to experience, explore and engage with the latest research in the arts, humanities and social sciences at UCL. Yep. The festival includes film screenings, lectures, debates and exhibitions highlighting the breadth and depth of the work which takes place across the UCL faculties. Yeah, and highlights from the festival include a Jane Austen quiz, which sees Professor John Mullen from UCL English invite members of the audience to answer quiz questions on Austen's fiction, leading to the unravelling of some of her cleverest tricks and puzzles. That's on May the 15th and runs from 6.30 to 7.30 in the evening. Yep, so all you Pride and Prejudice geeks can uh, get involved. Get down. Um, get down. Uh, all the events are free, but booking is required. And the links to all those booking pages are on the UCL News website. They are indeed. So make sure you head over now before all, they all sell out. And next up, we've got some exciting news straight from CERN, which is the home of the Large Hadron Collider, which is hosting a high-profile TEDx event this week. Yes, for those of you who don't know what TED Talks are, they have become famous around the world for for introducing people to new ideas that are worth spreading. So on the 3rd of May, CERN are hosting a series of these talks, including one from UCL Physics and Astronomy's Dr. Hiranya Perais, who will be talking about her latest research on the nature of the early universe. And... If, like most of us, you can't manage a trip to Geneva, UCL Physics and Astronomy are also hosting a live simulcast of the day in the Harry Massey Lecture Theatre. Uh, the audience at UCL will be able to watch the talks live from CERN on a high-quality webcast, and it's also hosted by Nobel Prize winner George Smoot. Um, so people who go will be able to discuss the, discuss the subjects with UCL researchers, and there will also be a drinks reception. That sounds amazing. And again, tickets are free, but you'll need to register and hurry because they really are going fast. So that's all the news for this week. But do stay tuned to hear an interview with two of UCL's University Challenge team members, Adam and Tom, on their experiences of taking part in the long running BBC Two quiz. So what was it like being on University Challenge and kind of being in front of the bright lights and, and the cameras? It's pretty bizarre, to be honest with you. Um, you get used to it. I think I probably after about the first episode, you get used to the lights and the situation. But it is very strange sort of looking out from the set. And 
actually in the first episode I was the furthest if you imagine the set the furthest participant from Jeremy Paxman and there was this guy who's like this hyper real individual wearing loads of makeup in the sort of dim distance that my eyes couldn't quite focus on it was like there was some sort of doll sitting there who happened to be talking it was very strange how about you Tom um yeah similar to Adam I think certainly having watched having watched the program for so long and then suddenly being sort of on the other end of the cameras it's it's um it, it's it's an environment that you you're, you're kind of familiar with from a distance from the TV but then suddenly to be looking out at the cameras in the audience and having Paxman sitting at the desk it, it, yeah it's a it's a very odd experience but um and it makes it strange watching it again now cuz um i think it was recorded quite a long time ago right about 12 12 months ago the actual series is that right yeah through from um january 2012 to um uh, yeah towards the end of april 2012 space spread out over a few weekends so were were you guys ever ever nervous before before the before the show or during during the show even well i mean i suppose in some ways i i think probably before the first couple of episodes more than the others um, so then get in more of a you kind of get in some sort of that that space which you being being in the zone it sounds very cheesy but you kind of do get that a bit more um, and you sort of, so you sort of get I found that I got past the nervousness but I think there was there was a yeah certainly a bit of nervousness before them partic- particularly before the first few episodes because it's it's you just don't know what to expect really you don't know how the whole situation works but then you do get used to it. I wouldn't say that it quite becomes normal, but um, you, yeah. By the time you've done one or two, then then you become more used to the situation. So, are the shows recorded in in, in blocks then? Yeah. So you you're kind of told to block out a few weekends um, in advance, um, like when they first tell you you're even getting interviewed to be on the show. Um, I mean, the whole application process but it's a whole other thing but um so you block those out and then near the time they say oh you're going to film um one this coming weekend or one and if you get through maybe another one and so you just sort of you're teed up a few weeks in advance for it so um how how did you guys come to apply for for the show and um or a place on on the show how how, how did it work at ucl um so you the the student union puts up posters in various different parts of the university and they invite people to turn up for um, essentially like a big pub quiz when you're <laughs> sitting you sit on your own with a sheet of paper and they read out questions in, a, in one of the lecture theatres um, and then there are two rounds like that and then the last round is a uh, there's ten of you with buzzers answering questions you then kind of picked based on your yeah. expertise or like areas of knowledge so it wasn't quite that scientific I don't well I mean it was scientific in, in that it was very data driven right you had I think it was see, Tom's right there were two rounds of sitting in lecture theatres the first round that was split in two um, you got a hundred questions then then you got another hundred questions in the second round and they accumulated your scores and the people who got the top ten scores are then on the buzzers and then the people who did the best on the buzzers the, the five because you have to have a reserve as well Okay. Um, the five of us who did the best on the buzzers then got through and it may have transpired that I, for example I got far worse com- total scores than someone who never even got in the team at all, it's possible um, we didn't sit down as it happened it worked out well but we didn't sit down and say 
oh well you know let's be really tactical we've got this person who knows about this area and this person no I mean we were fortunate that it worked out alright but we could have been better. So once once you've got the kind of the five, the, you know, the you you, um, you four and, and the one reserve, um, how how do you go around preparing for something like like this? So our, our preparation wasn't particularly um, systematic, but we <laughs> we um, there's a university challenge quiz book that you can get. So we we I think there were a few evenings when we met as a as a group to. Go through some of the questions with some. The the union has some buzzers which they used for the selection, and we borrowed those as well. But um, it wasn't much more than that. And going through a quiz on the train up to Manchester. Mm. Really, I I thought you would have prepared loads, but well, you make I it all sound quite relaxed. So I um I did a little bit. Of, I memorised a few lists of things, um, but there's not very much you can spend time on memorising. I mean the the you can't exactly learn classical music in three months or whatever. It's it's many of the questions just aren't susceptible to that kind of mm. preparation. I don't think. To me, it always seems like the music's one of the hardest to prepare for, or almost because you either, as you say, you either you either know it, yeah. you have a good knowledge of classical music because you've been brought up, your parents yeah. listen to it. Or, or yeah, I, th I think, and I think the same is true of things like uh, the, the literature and art questions and those sorts of things. Um, you kind of either have a background in that or not. But then the flip side of that is that I, Tom, I don't understand half the questions that Tom answers because I don't have a science background pretty much at all. Mm. So you know, half the time I'm just sitting there thinking, well, <laughs> I may as well not be here. <laughs> I think there's, there's quite a lot of um, Simon and Adam talking across me in the, in the um, filmed episodes as well when it, when anything particularly philosophical came up, I've got <laughs> got a bit of knowledge, but not not to the point where I felt I could weigh in to their discussions. Because <laughs> Simon does um, he's sort of science and technology studies, am I right? So he does, he's got a bit of philosophy from that, has he? He's, he's doing science. his yeah, BA in I think it's history and philosophy of science, and I think his first BA was in something like chemistry or something as well. So he can also dredge up some more technical <laughs> stuff from the depths of his mind. So what's it like backstage or even kind of on the programme with, with other teams? Do you find there are any kind of interesting rivalries which are kind of come to a head throughout the series? Um, it was, it seemed quite relaxed for the most part. We were, they, f they filmed all the episodes in blocks over weekends, so you'd be waiting in the green room with the other teams while you were waiting to go on. And they'd, they'd sometimes show the episodes being filmed on a screen but most of the time we'd just be sitting around they had some newspapers out and uh, gave us some coffee and it was it was yeah it was very relaxed um so what's Paxman like then is he any different when the cameras are off yeah well we we sort of interacted with him a bit um you certainly got it's great fun. I mean, like on 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 the set, they clearly all these people have been working together for years, and they just sort of play pranks on each other and stuff. All the production team, um, and that Paxman included. Um, so he just he certainly seemed like a perfectly decent bloke. We had a bit of a beer with him after one of the recording sessions. He seemed like a good guy. So, um, best and worst moments of the competition. I don't know. I guess the I, th I suppose the. The best one is actually just sitting there when the music starts playing, because the music plays in the studio as it plays at the beginning of the programme on the television. And sitting there and trying not to laugh. I mean, every mm. single time, it didn't matter which episode it was, I was still having to try really hard not to laugh when this flipping music was playing. Just sort of 
I think in the first episode I froze a bit and on the pretty much the first question that wasn't great, but um, I, yeah, I don't really, I don't think there were any particularly negative moments and yeah, as a whole it was good fun. I don't know, it's, it's, it's obviously quite gratifying to, to buzz in really quickly and, um, and actually get it right. If you answer that quickly, people are just like, how do you know that? And it's just most of the time it's a completely instinctive thing and you're willing to take the risk. And sometimes you look like a genius and other times you look like an absolute idiot. It just triggers something, I suppose. Yeah, and you end up in a situation, I don't know if Tom found this as well, um, a couple of ones where you have almost this sort of semi, it's not exactly out of body, you have this sort of weird experience where something drops into your head. Like somehow you're given the answer before you've heard enough of the question. You have no idea how that came into your head. And then you sort of reason with yourself and see that actually it was the right one and you press the buzzer and it turns, lo and behold, it turns out to be the right one. Very, very strange. It's, it, it seems like it's rarely a case of actually knowing the answer. It's more kind of having a bit of a guess based on what you know, what you recognise in the question. And sometimes it turns out to be right. Maybe it's different for other people. I don't know. Maybe other people do know the answers. You're all very modest. Both of you are very modest. Well, um, it, it could be that you do know the answer, but the way that you're answer, you're, the way you're responding, you should do a neuroscience experiment on it, just wire us up. Um, you, the way that you're responding doesn't feel like you're doing it on the basis like, oh, I, I have, I feel I have concrete knowledge of this thing here and I'm going to answer about it. It's more, as, as Tom says, it's more, am I willing to have a punt based on this sort of stuff that's kind of nebulously hanging around in my head and give it a go? Um, which I guess is a particular skill in itself anyway. <laughs> so any any plans to carry on doing quizzes? Are you going to clear up on the pub quiz scene? Four well, of you? Or five even? We have talked about it and wholly failed in the last 12 months to actually yeah. do anything about it. <laughs> Maybe it's about time we, we had a go. We did the postgraduate pub quiz. You went? Oh yeah, I can make our, it. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, well that was that was part of our preparation for the, <laughs> for the tournament. But yeah, we haven't done one since and it might be... It might be time to organise that. Get banned from the pubs of Bloomsbury for being too good. Yeah, like (laughs) like counting cards or something. (laughs) Great interview. I get the impression they were quite bemused by the whole experience. Yeah, they were really nice guys though, and it just goes to prove that you don't have to be socially challenged to appear on University Challenge, which is always always a massive plus. Yep. And so to finish off the podcast this week, we look at some research from UCL Geography Department, which suggests that a huge pool of warm water once stretched across from Indonesia to Africa and South America. Intrigued? Well, have a listen to Dr. Chris Brearley explain more about the unusual phenomenon that may have existed four million years ago and what it might mean for current climate change models. My name's Chris Briley and I'm a lecturer in climate modelling in the geography department. And I'd like to tell you about our recent work that we've just published in an article called Patterns and Mechanisms of Early Pliocene Warmth in Nature. And what we did is we collected together estimates of sea surface temperature that go back five million years. And these come from analysing the chemistry of long sequences of mud drilled from the ocean floor and, and trying to estimate temperature from there. And what happens in the tropics is rather than there being sort of a global warming and so you get the pattern but everything cranks up a bit, you end up with the maximum temperatures not really increasing very much but everywhere else catching up with those maximum temperatures and so you end up with sort of a vast warm pool. When you move from a flatter sea surface temperature gradient encompassing the whole of the Pacific and the Indian Oceans to something happening more like today, then actually you're seeing large changes in rainfall both locally and 
elsewhere in the world, so over East Africa, for example. And it has been suggested that those changes in rainfall over East Africa could have been a, an important factor in driving human evolution. Having found this, this world in the past that's sort of a, a uniform thing that we don't really understand why it happened, uh, that would be sort of academic if, if it were not for other factors that were important back then. And so those other factors are the fact that we're looking at a warm world and with a carbon dioxide level similar to what we're breathing today. And it was a very long situation, so it was a steady state of that world. And so in some respects that bears similarities to the future. And, and until we know the reason for the discrepancy between our explanations and the data, I'm worried that we can't discount a possible future that has a vast pool of warm water covering the tropics and the nasty changes in the atmospheric circulation and rainfall changes that would go along with that. But it could just be, in some respects, that, we've, that our image of the past is wrong, that, that we've synthesised in this paper. I'd like to think it's not, but it could be that it's wrong. Or it could be that, we're, that by assuming it's a a similar condition to the future world, actually that's wrong and there's some critical factor that we haven't yet discovered. And in general message is that we know enough to do something about what's, what's going on. We know, we know that it's greenhouse gases are causing a climate or a changing climate and we know that if we don't emit as many greenhouse gases we have a less changing climate. The major uncertainty in sort of century scale climate projections is how much greenhouse gases uh, and other forcings humans are actually going to emit. Yes, there's an uncertainty on exactly what the temperature change would be, but it doesn't change the fundamentals that, that more greenhouse gases means more climate change. And so we know enough to act on that now. And that's all that we have for this show, but we'll be back in a fortnight with more news and features from around UCL. But if you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, please do. You can tweet us at UCL News or email us at mynews at ucl.ac.uk. Bye.